I ended up going into a kid's toy design after I graduated. And then when that didn't work out, I went into retail and then I switched into digital product design and haven't looked back since. Hello and welcome to the Tech Queens podcast, a podcast focused on featuring the stories and advice from women of color in tech. In this episode, I'm talking with Alexis Lucio, a designer of many things with a passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion in tech. In the five years since she graduated, she's designed kid toys. She's done research on creative spaces and communities. She's created costumes for multiple theater shows in San Francisco. She's been the first and only product designer for a year at a hypergrowth startup, and she continues to work in the IT DevOps security space. In her spare time, Alexis loves dancing bachata and salsa if the imposter syndrome doesn't kick in, cooking using local seasonal food, and finding where the best cup of iced coffee is. Welcome, Alexis. Hi, thanks for having me today. Yeah, no worries. So uh, let's get started. What's your story? So I'm an LA native and a daughter to a childcare provider and an operations engineer. So in reality, I really should have seen my design career coming. Neither of my parents attended or finished high school, but they knew that education was super important to be successful. So they really fostered a nurturing and educational childhood for me, including an all in-house daycare until I was 16 that my mom ran. So I rarely let on that I'm an only child. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. <laughs> I'm like one of the few people who likes kids in my friends group, so it's fine. Yeah, um, I like kids. <laughs> but through a lot of hard work, resilience, and just really amazing people who saw potential in me, I finished high school. I graduated from Stanford majoring in product design, which, fun fact, the D school doesn't grant degrees. The School of Engineering does. Even uh, for product design. Yeah, so oh, product okay. design is actually a BS in engineering, so it comes from the School of Engineering. Oh, okay. Uh, just okay. like it's nice to demit <laughs> certain rumors. So you have an engineering degree from Stanford. I do, yeah. So I had to take like calculus, mechanics, introduction to computer science, and I don't use any of that now. So brilliant. Cool. <laughs> and the kicker was I was also able to minor in theater. And yeah. so I specialized in like costume, hair, and makeup design. And it was such a great way to blend the elements of like physical design with this like more ephemeral like it comes up you finish it and it comes down kind of like theatrical manner in which things are designed so and then as well at Stanford I was able to reclaim my Latinx identity thanks to El Centro and being in Ballet Bucorico for all four years so I ended up going into a kids toy design after I graduated and then when that didn't work out I went into retail and then I switched into digital product design and haven't looked back since brilliant Okay, so I actually have a lot of follow-up questions. First of all, why does Stanford do that with, like, the School of Engineering with product design? Like, do you know why? I don't know. I think they just call it the D school, and then everyone thinks that it's a school that grants degrees. So, like, Uh we have the School of Medicine, School of Engineering, Uh the School of Law. And they're like, oh, what's a school in it? But it's not the case. Uh, Oh, okay, cool. So it's, it's interesting. But it's a fun space, like very high ceilings, lots of post-it notes, movable whiteboards. Right. You mean like Stanford or the D school? The D school. Oh, gotcha. Brilliant. And then like, what is El Centro? I'm actually not familiar with that. Yeah. So they actually recently renamed, so I should say, um, El Centro Chicanex and Latinx. Um, That is kind of the comunidad or place where Latinx students at Stanford can go and sort of find their own community. 
Um, so that was really awesome for me. Actually, uh, one of my favorite parts this Friday morning, there's a cafecito. So they have pan dulce. Uh, someone during the holiday season makes champurrado. We always have hot chocolate. And it's just a really good way to meet undergrad and graduate Latinx students mm -hmm. and discover just like how many of us there are. Okay. Uh, and so, El Centro was the main group for Latinx people at Stanford? Yeah. And there's also kind of like Afro-Latinx, there's a Native American group as well, and then we do like cross-collaboration events. Oh, brilliant. And do you know like how, roughly how many Latinx students were at Stanford when you were studying? I believe the population was 17%. 17, that's actually pretty high, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like so anytime it's double digits, you're like, oh my goodness. So it was really good to see that i think like i went to a predominantly white high school and i lived in a predominantly white town so to be able to see that many people or to have the fact that like one in five uh, undergrad students in my class identified as hispanic or latinx was mm -hmm. really powerful to me mm -hmm. and then to be able to meet so many people like my best friends um one was born in new mexico uh, ended up being my sponsor when i got a uh, what do you call confirmed in Catholicism? Mm -hmm. So she ended up teaching me about like how Native American folklore was blended into her form of Catholicism, which I found super fascinating. Uh, my other best friend, both of her parents are from Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. So to be able to see not only my own Latinx country of origin, which I identify with Mexico because my mom mm -hmm. is from there, but to be able to learn more about like Central America and South America and Spain and see how all of these things kind of come together and understand you know, the challenges that we all face are kind of one and the same, always really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think like, I have a similar story in where when I was in high school, it was predominantly white, like it was very segregated. It was like half black, half white school. And most of the classes that I was in were mostly like, it was mostly white students. So I think moving to California after like growing up in Virginia, and then doing a little stint in New York City, just super briefly for like my master's degree, but then moving out here and saying like, oh, hey, like there's so many people like me with like a similar background. It was something that was like hard for me to transition into at first, but like, I think it's really great that Stanford had like that supportive environment. Yeah, and I think one thing to note as well was, it was the first time where I felt like my Latinx identity could be celebrated. So my mom came to this country by herself without knowing English at 15. And, you know, I didn't learn the language of, you know, how to explain this until my senior year of college, actually. My favorite mm -hmm. class that I took ever at Stanford is called Cultural Psychology. Uh, it's taught by Dr. Hazel Rose Marcus, amazing professor. Uh, and I learned there's actually like a two by two that talks about the immigrant and then what their external stimulus receives. And it's basically whether someone will successfully assimilate, whether someone feels isolated, whether someone feels alienated. And, you know, my mom felt like she had to give up a lot of her culture in order to successfully assimilate. So oh, for instance, like my mom doesn't know how to make tamales. Uh, she doesn't remember how to make lengua de res. So mm -hmm. whenever she needs a recipe, she calls up her sister and she's like, how do you cook this? And so, and my dad is white and doesn't speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. So like she never taught me Spanish until I was in seventh grade and was like, hey, I can't communicate with half my family. So like now I should actually learn. But as I went through high school, there are a lot of, fortunately, like jealous kids, like high school kids are dumb. I don't know. They're just like, they're mean <laughs> no, they're and really, there's like hormones really and all these things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so much of my identity came with 
this animosity. Like I remember junior year in AP English, someone looked me in the eye and said, you don't have to work hard to get into Harvard because you're a girl Latina. And for every accomplishment that I had done, and mind you, I was in like the top 10 of my class. There was like 750 people. Like I was in all these APs, didn't cheat, like worked my way through. All the shit, yeah. And it's always, oh, because you're brown. Oh, because you're Latina. Oh, and it's like, dude, can we, can I get credit for like one thing that I've done? <laughs> so to reframe that narrative and granted, like those similar things still happened at Stanford, I think just to a lesser degree. But to have that support and to learn from others that, yeah, this actually happens a lot. But you get to choose what community you go to for that nourishing and community care and what friends you have. And it's just nice to be able to have that system where you can share these grievances and know, fortunately and unfortunately, that you're not alone and then receive some sort of healing. Again, thinking about like, oh, here's my life. I should have realized this. Ballet for Cortico was a way for me to heal mm-hmm. through dance and through movement. I do that now with salsa and bachata. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, cool. Making links to my life. That's brilliant. <laughs> and like you talk about community and we talked about this before we started recording, but you talked about how you didn't really like this concept of networking because it felt kind of slimy back in college or high school, was it? And then now because you've been able to tap into like this other community where you feel like it resonates with you, it's a completely different story. Could you like touch on that? Yeah, so as a first-generation high school and college grad, like, I didn't have a lot of social capita. I didn't know about networking. I didn't Mm -hmm. have, you know, friends, a family of friends who could get me into this internship or whatever. So a lot of it was building this network. And mind you, like, my parents have very blue-collar jobs. So, like, I didn't know what design was until I actually went to college. Mm -hmm. And to kind of tell a quick story, I actually wanted to be a chemical engineer so badly, like all throughout high school, I That's had this funny. Oh my god, I did not envision you. As that. Right. Yeah. So I had this like innate plan to have this like reverse, what is it, combustion cycle and like reduce <laughs> methane gases. And uh, Stanford has what they call freshman seminars. So uh-huh. as a freshman, you can take classes on almost anything, and it's like a ten week course, and it kind of just does exposure mm-hmm. for you. So I got into, didn't get into the photography one, still slightly bitter about that, (laughs) um, but got into the chemical engineering one. And I took three classes that at the end of the first week, I dropped out. I was like, I can't do this the rest of my life. This is so boring. Why am I doing this? What am I going to do? And like two days after uh, there was an activities fair and someone was talking to me. I was like, Hey, you know, what if you could do like this really cool engineering degree, but also take art and psychology classes? what what is this (laughs) and it was product design and lo and behold Stanford's one of the five universities in the U.S. that grants a product design degree Mm -hmm. I'm sure that number is bigger now but it's really interesting to see how the universe works now talking (laughs) at Stanford a majority of folks there are cisgender so like they match to the gender that they are heterosexual Mm -hmm. so that they they're male identifying uh, preferred female Mm -hmm. they're female identifying preferred male able-bodied so you know no physical ailment to them tend to be older gentlemen who have come from like railroad mongrels and like other things so it was just people who I couldn't connect to and didn't really understand me and part of me had this like bitterness and animosity of like who are why do I need to rely on you because you've never helped me or your kids were the one who have give, like passed down this trauma to me but as I figured out like those are the kind of people who you have to talk to and but you don't have to talk to everyone And, you know, it's taken me a while, but finding 
these communities like El Centro and even as a UX designer now, Tequeria mm -hmm. has been really instrumental because I see people who look like me and I believe that I can get to where they are because they're there and they face the same challenges as me. And mm -hmm. there's not as much educational burden of trying to explain to someone like, yes, I'm first gen or yes, I'm that next. Mm -hmm. And this is how it impacts my work. Mm -hmm. So to be able to kind of have those barriers already removed feels like I'm creating a much more genuine network. You know, I've been kind of looking around. I say that I'm passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been having the signature informal coffee chats with folks. And to be able to have these wonderful conversations about like decolonialization and opening my mind up to different things. What is the meaning of BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, person of color? and what that means in relationship to the motherland. And these feelings that I feel in address in therapy actually stem from like colonialization and patriarchy and imperialism. And to have just like this deep understanding without having to sit for 50 minutes and explain to someone why, and mm -hmm. you know, even someone who doesn't want to be educated. It's been so wonderful. So I realize now, and when I go back to, I do like recent grad panels, I go back to Stanford, I judge our capstone projects. I always make a note to talk to the Latinx or the first gen students and tell mm -hmm. them like, it's okay. It's going to be hard. Know that there are so many people who have done this before you mm -hmm. and you are joining this wonderful group and we will help you get to where you need to go. And honestly, I see that it brings so much relief to them. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that I'm there, that they can see me. And it's mm -hmm. like, I'm finally being that inspiration that I wanted when I was a kid mm -hmm. and I could only see people like JLo or like Selena <laughs> or being in like the like, background of a music uh, rap music video. Yeah, not at all related to like the kind of work that we Like do. I've never seen like a Latina scientist, you know, or right. even Oh yeah, it's triggering us all. <laughs> That's something that it, it's hilarious because I immediately thought of when you talked about BIPOC, there was a space at JSConf EU, which is like the big JavaScript conference in uh, Germany that they had in Berlin, I think, this year, and they had a dedicated space for the first time for BIPOC. Wow. It was called the BIPOC space because it was Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and Tech space. So BIPOC, I, I believe. Yeah. And so I knew the organizer because she was a Latina living in Berlin. Her name was Vanessa. And we we talked and she was like, hey, we, I'd love you to speak about your, you know, your experience. And I did, and I, I, I talked exactly about that sort of realization that I was starting to become the inspiration that I wanted to see when I was younger because I was starting to contribute to online courses. Like I contributed to the new front end nano degree for Udacity. And like Udacity was something that I used when I was younger to try and like teach myself when I was just starting out. Mm -hmm. And so like having that realization of like, hey, you actually are making a difference, even if it's just like impacting one or two people, which, you know, most likely it is not, it's probably impacting a lot of people, but even if it is just a few people, like, I think that's really meaningful. Yeah. And I yeah. have to say, like, you know, I know we don't work exactly in the same field, but you're such an inspiration to me, like being on the board of Tequeria, speaking at all these conferences, using your voice, like you do all your side projects. <laughs> there's a, I saw a wonderful comic on Twitter. It's like someone buys a plant, like this brand new plant, they bring it home and there's just like a row of dead plants and the new plants like, what's going on? And I was like, Ooh, that's me and all my side projects. <laughs> so like the fact that that's you're hilarious. out there, like, yeah, you, you're being the inspiration to the next gen, i.e. me. And it's just so nice to be able to like sit next to you and have these conversations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Same, same for you as well. 
<laughs> no, I'm doing much, but thank you. Well, actually, that kind of reminds me. I wanted to talk about the Interact project because you're super passionate about that. What is that all about? Yeah, so that is um, a really wonderful nonprofit started up by Maurice Woods. It was his master's thesis when he was at UW. And basically what Interact Project does is it teaches free design thinking and entrepreneurship courses to Black and Latinx youth in the Bay Area and presents them again, like I didn't know what design was until I was in college, but it tells them what design is. And we say like, hey, there are careers in this. There are careers that, you know, you can help support your family with. That's what they're really thinking about, right? Like these are students who don't even have their own Maslow's hierarchy of needs fulfilled. And they're going to schools that don't have a lot of resources. They're going to schools that may not even have enough teachers and they mm -hmm. feel like there's not that much attention given mm -hmm. to them. So we bring them into the classroom and we have what's called our Foundational Youth Design Academy. So I joined in 2017 to be a teacher. And actually, fun fact, I wanted to join the year before, but I missed the teaching deadline by like two oh, days. No. <laughs> so waited a whole year uh, and then ended up getting into the classroom to teach. And it was just wild to watch these students like grasp what the idea of design was and that design is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And what I love about design is that it is a tool that like education, no one can take away from you. It's something that's up in your mind. You don't need a fancy computer. You know, you don't need a $10,000 piece of equipment. Like you can do it with post-it notes, pencil, paper, your mind. Um, so we are currently working on curriculum to help support our upperclassmen in mm -hmm. high school. And it's wild because we're now watching some of our students go into college and being like, yeah, I'm going to be a designer. I'm going to be an illustrator. Wow, that's brilliant. Uh, so that's been super phenomenal. And just like working with the team, shout out to Interact Project teams. <laughs> They're so passionate. Mm -hmm. Like I really adore them. And it you know, some days it is hard. It's a lot of emotional work and, you know, everyone has a full-time job mm -hmm. and then and, we yeah. go after work to like have these meetings. But I think just, again, being the representation that you want to see, especially because we have classes that are predominantly Latinx and Black students mm -hmm. uh, and especially Southeast Asian, Filipinx, mm -hmm. um, whatnot. They're seeing people who look like them and who do something really cool. Mm -hmm. And that's inspiring. Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention, you know, our classes have like a teacher-student ratio of one to three. Wow. So they get like really privatized attention and mm -hmm. we can talk to them about certain things. And yeah, it's, it's fun. It makes me feel really old because like one time someone was like, you listen to 21 Pilots? And I was like, yes. Oh my God, I'm not that much older than you, please. But to see them grow and even get to like see their parents and talk to them and be like, my son daughter has changed so much because of this program like i do recommend people giving back and i know not everyone is in a place to do that but mm -hmm. once you are like volunteering is such a phenomenal thing especially mm -hmm. when you can do more long-term engagement like it's hard to do a lot of impact when you go in for like two hours and then all right we're done i'm never gonna see you again but i still see some of my students who i taught two years ago and I'll go up to them and be like, hey, like, how are you doing? They're like, I'm a freshman in high school. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm old. <laughs> uh, but to be able to still be in their lives. And like, I mean, I, there's one of our students and she really wants to be a fashion designer. She's mm -hmm. like, yeah, IP helped me decide this. And I was like, oh my God. Like the fact that we actually impacted someone's life is pretty cool. I'm curious how the Interact Project like helps, I guess, parents understand like in our minority communities that design is something that will pay the bills. Because even my parents had this like perception when I was growing up that if any of their children, like me and my siblings, 
decided to pursue design, we would be like a struggling artist. And so I'm wondering if it was like built in the curriculum somehow. Yeah, I think mean, that's a challenge for us of how do we engage with the parents because mm -hmm. we're, we feel like we're really good at engaging with students. Mm -hmm. But if that student doesn't have a supportive community outside of the classroom, then they're not going to be as successful. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things we're doing, for instance, is creating pamphlets for parents, creating content for parents, and also being mindful that English may not be everyone's first language or strongest language. Mm -hmm. So looking at, you know, how are we translating these things into Spanish? Localization. Exactly. Yeah. So we are looking at trying to create a, a more content and be just more events. Mm -hmm. Like if we can bring more parents into design events and give parents the opportunity to ask designers questions, mm -hmm. I think a lot of those myths that they may have or like thing hearsay get debunked mm -hmm. and they know and they see that, oh, you know, if I'm in this really cool building mm -hmm. and there are all these snacks here, I think my kid's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. I only ask because I used to do volunteering for this organization called code.org mm -hmm. and essentially I would volunteer to go to either these middle schools or high schools and talk about what it's like to work in tech. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of high school students across the U.S. are not exposed to even that field and they don't even know how that looks like. Right. They were just kind of like consuming all these amazing products, but they have no idea like how it works in the background. And so I was telling them, hey, this is how it all works. But then the teacher before I even went to the next high school told me, hey, for your presentation, could you touch on salary? Because for a lot of students, that's what's really going to make or break it because they're trying to support their families or they're trying to like make it out of poverty. And so like, that was something I didn't really even consider. And then I made sure to be super transparent with like, hey, they're gonna pay you like a pretty good salary and it's gonna be like this much, even though you only have a bachelor's degree in computer science, like, you know, if you're, if you're going into development. And so for, for like that moment when I said that, I could eat, like see people like nodding their head, like the mm -hmm. high school students and be like, oh, okay. like then they were like starting to consider it. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, even in middle school, we used to have uh, in our classroom, these things called lightning talks. So we would bring in some of our design friends, especially if they were in an area that we didn't work in for our full-time jobs, just mm -hmm. to get exposed to different things. And what I'll give our students is that they are a lot more hyper-conscientious about society and how the world works than most adults think they are. And this is especially a group of you know, young adults who have been forgotten by most. So the first question they're asking is how much money do you make? What's your salary? You know, the speaker usually kind of gets thrown off a little <laughs> bit. We're like, no, like that's what they want to know. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they are aware of income inequality and racial inequality and, you know, gentrification. And they want to make sure that they're going to be able to support their family. So to start with that, like we don't think about it, I think, mm -hmm. and especially more privileged folks or folks who've had more access don't. But once again, like when you start saying that, their ears perk up, they're like, wait a minute, are you telling me like I can have food in the fridge or mm -hmm. like I can have this new phone whenever I want? So mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to see what the new generation is thinking of. And I mean, like, I think that's something that maybe you've touched on either. I've seen you touch on like in TechRia Slack, or maybe I heard it from you, but I think you've touched on like that transition from going from a family that has been raised with not that much to like entering this kind of world of privilege and like resetting your expectations. I feel like you've talked about that. And that's like something that I've gone through as well. Like both of my parents are educators. They both immigrated here. The traditional like 
work really hard and get really successful kind of method is what they use. And it's like a similar story to like what a lot of immigrant family, families in the US have gone through. And so when I got into tech, when I got my first salary offer, I was like, oh my God, this is like crazy. And, but then when I, <laughs> but then after I accepted it, I realized, oh wait, this is actually ridiculously low for like the kind of work that I'm doing. And I just didn't realize that because my expectations were like really low. Yeah. Or you right. don't, maybe you don't even have those expectations. You're just like, yeah. oh my God, it's a number. Yay. <laughs> and then you realize that because of your gender, your race, you're getting paid 10 to 15 K less than, you know, white male counterparts. You're like, wait. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I have brought this up a lot and have talked to friends about it and I call it the socioeconomic identity crisis. So for instance, I started making more money than both my parents' income combined at 25. And that was wild to me. I was like, I don't, granted, like my rent was as much as their mortgage <laughs> for their tiny house in Southern California. Uh-huh. So there's still like inflation to deal with, but it was just like, oh my gosh, like how do I deal with this like what is a 401k like how much I don't even know right like, how exactly much I, you know my exactly. dad um works with the union and my mom like doesn't get benefits like she had to open up a Roth IRA like 10 years ago because she hadn't saved mm-hmm. that much money if at all so meanwhile like we are in this tech bubble where we have to learn about like what is equity versus stock? How do we balance that with salary? How do you invest in a 401k? What percentage should you invest? Like what is online savings accounts versus like in-person savings account? And how do you play the stock market? And there's just so much to absorb. And again, I think it goes back to like that social financial capita Mm -hmm. that is passed down from generation to generation. But when you are first gen or you're part of a family that you know, is lower income or has immigrated from a different place. It's like, whoa, I have so much to catch up on that has nothing to do with my job description. And it's trying to understand that. So like how I think Techeria has like a really good finance channel that I've been looking at. Oh, okay. So that's been really good just for (laughs) me to look at. Uh, One book, I forgot who recommended it to me. And it's by Aaron Lowry. It's called Broke Millennial. It's an $11 book. And one of the chapters in the book Mm -hmm. is how to invest such that you, the book will buy itself. And it's been so helpful for me to be able to kind of distill like, okay, where are the parts in my financial career that I need help with? Or even, you know, going more towards the root of the problem is what's my relationship with money? That's so true. And identifying like, hey, the relationship that your parents have with money does not need to be the same relationship that I need to have with money. And it shouldn't be. Like you live very different lives. Uh, You know, you may live in different areas where Mm -hmm. there's different uh, costs of living. So it's been interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to admit there are still days where I just feel so lost. Like uh, my company offers an employee stock purchasing program or ESPP. Mm-hmm. So we just recently changed providers and I went into this meeting and I felt, <laughs> one, I was the youngest person there. So that felt empowering, but also I was asking like, how do I buy? How do I sell? And these people were looking at me like, are really? you serious? And I'm like, I just, I just want help. You said that this was like a training session. <laughs> uh, and then they were really nice and they were like, Hey, like consider this or consider this. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think you have to be willing to feel a little embarrassed in order mm-hmm. to feel empowered because that little sliver of embarrassment mm-hmm. in exchange for a better financial future or mm-hmm. just being able to invest or getting more bang for your buck, super useful. 
Yeah, and it makes me wonder, like, how much more empowered, like, communities of color especially would be if we did teach, like, basic personal finance, like, in every school. Yeah, or it's wild to me that, you know, everyone uses money. I would be hard-pressed <laughs> to find someone who doesn't, but uh-huh. we don't teach that in institutions. No. We don't even teach that in high schools. Not in any institution, really, like, at any level right? Yeah. I can't think of it. No one teaches you, like, here's how to open a savings account, or, you know, here's how a credit score works. A friend was telling me that their friend went to go look at rentals, Mm -hmm. and when asked, like, what's your credit score, and he's like, oh, I have a perfect credit score, and my friend looked at him and said, like, well, you don't have any credit cards. He's like, yeah, so I have to have a perfect score, right? Oh. (laughs) And he's like, no, like, it's actually, like, the inverse of that. So it's just like, how do we not know, like, how our basic economy works? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, and there's so many people who are, you know, playing a game, for lack of better words, Mm -hmm. or like, you know, utilizing their strengths or investing their money smartly. And we are, as first generation folks of color in tech, are also able to get into that game. But we have to learn what that even is and where to go. There's a huge learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, all that knowledge comes with, like, generational wealth almost and like over many generations and that's just not the case with like most communities of color they have not like I guess built up that generational wealth yeah and especially in I talked about this in uh the Twitter talk that I gave or the technology talk that I gave at Twitter Mm -hmm. but there are some people who can't invest like they don't have extra money because they're giving that to their parents they're sending money back home they're trying to pay off their debt and you know that is something that many folks don't have and they don't realize you know so it's it's interesting like people keep looking at face value they're like oh why don't you have more stocks why don't you do this and i'm like you don't understand that i'm helping my parents pay their mortgage i know know i've paid my parents like thousands of dollars already you know just like to help them out and it's like it's a game of catch-up almost because then that money I could be using for something else. But since I don't come from like this perfectly privileged background, it's like, I feel obligated to help out my parents, which I don't feel bad about. But it's like, there is kind of like this game of catch up almost that yeah. only certain communities would really face more of. And on top of that, it's also a cultural thing. Like I've mm-hmm. met people who are like, why do you give money to your parents? I'm like, why well, wouldn't I give money <laughs> to my parents? No, that's like, true as well. Like, I guess specifically within the Latinx community, like that relationship, this familial relationship mm-hmm. is really important. Within the Chinese community, that's also something I've learned is really important too. Yeah, like one example in, in academia that I remember in middle school, uh, I don't know what book we were reading to have this discussion, but our teacher asked how many of you when your parents are old enough would take care of them? And I noted that all the students of color raised their hand. And they said, uh, the next question was, well, how many of you will put them like in a home or like let them get like hospice <laughs> care or something? And all the non-students of color <laughs> raised their hand. And it was the, one of the first times I was like, huh, there might be something really different about these two sides of the classroom. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to see how it propagates or how, you know, it's, I think about it because like I said before, I'm an only child. So like, I have to take care of my parents. Who else is going to take care of my parents? Mm-hmm. And this is so true. Yeah, it's like I'm saving for them and me, mostly them mm-hmm. and then me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, these are things that I'm thinking about that maybe some folks don't. 
and you know sometimes it's oh because there's more siblings or there's a bigger family mm-hmm. sometimes it's like oh my parents are already set like we can just pay for care mm-hmm. uh, so it's really interesting to think about these things and how you would never find them out at face value mm-hmm. it's only through like really thoughtful conversation or sometimes like mishappenings that you're like oh no i definitely said something insensitive mm-hmm. so shifting gears then like specifically as it relates to like being a woman of color in tech like do you see like minorities in general within the tech industry becoming powerful enough becoming wealthy enough like in the long run to be able to like shift into that sort of mentality like a different one or are you already seeing that take place like kind of where do you see minorities in tech like long term and maybe where do you see yourself too Ooh. Oh, that's always a tough one. Actually, that's like my least favorite interview question where uh-huh. people like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? So I'm like, I don't know. My career might not even exist anymore. <laughs> like a robot could do it and I'm on like a that's future true. somewhere. That's uh, true. So in, well, how about like, how do you envision the future looking like, I guess, for people of color in tech? Do you have an idea of that? I would love to see more folks, like more folks beating the stereotypes that have been placed upon us. Like I think often Harvard Business Review has this great article on how women of color often do more office housework than their non-colored counterparts. Glamour work, yeah. Yeah. Um, taking notes, opening doors, starting slide decks. And Oof. I Yeah, I could talk about that. <laughs> I have stories from my current, <laughs> uh, from my current job. Oh well, yeah, I guess. But it's it's more of like, oh, you know, they're not the ones who are planning the office parties and, you know, hey, someone can bring up a company's involvement with ICE that doesn't have to be from the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. Or someone can talk about, uh, you know, slavery that doesn't have to be African-American. So you're saying the burden will not just be on people of color within tech to, like, bring up these core issues, like, other people will feel comfortable enough to bring them up? I think so. I see the movement, I see the needle shifting. Mm -hmm. And I also see the fact that people of color who work in tech are rallying more towards these communities. Like there is this kind of rise in ERGs. There is, you know, benefit to having communities outside of work, communities within work. And I hope in the future that we continue banding together to have these conversations. Because Mm -hmm. if we are united and we do have this one voice, we are so much louder than our individual selves within companies. I'm so hopeful for you know, this upcoming generation of people of color in tech, because that means the generation after us sees more people as directors, SVPs, even VPs. And largely because the folks now are really raising questions and asking, you know, it's awesome if you have a full pipeline. Like I know a lot of tech companies are like, oh, it's so hard to find minorities to like pull them into our tech company. And I'm like, yeah, but if you just open the door and pull in the first person of color you see, they're not guaranteed to succeed if your company doesn't have an environment ready for them to set up. If your company is full of microaggressions, if you are not considering like how these folks have just different backgrounds, you do not get to tap into their wealth, their diversity of thought because they're going to leave. And that's why there's, I think there's still such a high attrition of folks in color and tech. And I'm seeing that change where people are like, hey, like, you know, let's talk about Hispanic Heritage Month, or let's talk about how Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence (laughs) Day, or let's talk about how it's not okay to touch a Black woman's hair. Mm -hmm. Like, let's talk about, like, how, you know, these cultural paradigms are shifting, 
one, even offering us that space to do that. And then two, giving us the space to thrive or changing things away. It just makes me more hopeful. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think Techeria especially like sees ERGs as like a way for at least employees at companies, tech companies specifically to like empower themselves any way they can. And so we've been trying to be supportive of specifically like Latinx ERGs within our community. It's really interesting. And I feel like we could really dive into that topic too of like ERGs in general and like the kind of support that they get. Historically for me, I have like volunteered as a lead for an ERG at like past companies. I've volunteered for our ERG here at Slack, but sometimes I don't always really see the benefits of like going to an ERG and like putting in all this time and effort and not really getting anything back. So I'm like wondering what your take on that is, if anything. Yeah. So, you know, for me, the two or a few tech companies that I've worked at, uh, Splunk is the first place that I have been that has ERGs period. Oh, wow. So yeah. for me, yeah. And, you know, working at the last place I worked at was a startup where I joined as the 40th employee. I left at around 120. Mm-hmm. And I think at the most, there were only two Latinx folks. You and one would. Yeah. And one was there for four months and then left. So it was basically me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just to be able to have an ERG and to provide that community can be so powerful. Mm -hmm. So it is a challenge though. And I see it in terms of how do you convince someone who also is not part or who isn't part of that ERG that your work is worth it Mm -hmm. or that, you know, it's okay to like spend some hours to like do this community event. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I see it and I feel and I hope what I hope for in like my own personal career is that I'm able to somehow quantify emotion. How awesome is it that we can have a cafecito and have 60 Latinx folks show up? Mm-hmm. And to the point where I'm like, I didn't even know there were this many of us in this company. <laughs> or, you know, I think about some of the tech area events, like Twitter's, for example, mm-hmm. like 200 Latinx people in tech. I'm like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Cause mm-hmm. I don't see you. Or I go to, I also recommend transform her at LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's that? It's a one-day conference. I believe it's both in SF and New York um, for brown and black women in tech. Oh, yeah. I think I heard about that, but I couldn't tell. It's phenomenal because you walk in, you're like, oh, my God, everyone kind of looks like me (laughs) in some way. And it's just so comforting and, like, allows you to relax if only for a day Mm -hmm. or even for two hours. Mm. So I have really enjoyed ERGs and, you know, I'm still learning so much. And what I really appreciate is that in my experience, ERGs from other companies like rallying together mm-hmm. because there's no four-year degree for ERGs. Like there's no official training. <laughs> uh, shout out to Stripe who does a really good job <laughs> of training uh, their community leads. But being able to talk to, you know, I know Tecaria does um, Bay Area ERG lunches and mm-hmm. just, you know, talking to much more established ERGs and saying like, hey, like I'm trying to start up the Latinx ERG. Like, how do I even do that? And they're like, oh, well, be wary of like X, Y, and Z. And, you know, you can borrow this template. And And don't name your ERG Ola because everyone names them Ola. Yeah, or even (laughs) thinking about inclusion of the Latinx community, right? So something that we were looking at at Splunk was, hey, Latinx people also speak Portuguese. So we should look at a name that can be, that's familiar enough in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, so that's how we came up with Somos. Oh, because okay. It was the same. Oh, gotcha. Uh, also, the alliteration is great. <laughs> but, <you laughs> yeah, know. Netflix is also called Somos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just to be able to connect with other ERGs, like I know I'm speaking to some folks of like, hey, like 
we don't have a lot in our budget, but if we all three of us invest in like one room where we could do a happy hour, mm -hmm. that's a great way to offer cross community and networking mm -hmm. yep. at a third of the cost. Mm -hmm. So it's great to be able to, again, like seek that community mm -hmm. within our own company and be like, yes, we are here. We are, you know, doing our jobs like really mm -hmm. well, like we're thriving. And then to have like these outside network of folks who are like, oh, hey, like, you know, you never know when you're going to need those connections. Mm -hmm. Actually, I got my job at Splunk from Techria. No way, I really? totally forgot about that. I yeah. also got my job at Slack because of Techria. Yeah, it was just like in the intro channel. It's like, oh my gosh, Latinx who does like big data design, let's talk. And then at the end, she was like, do you want a job at Splunk? <laughs> so. No way, I had no idea. That's brilliant. Um, the way I got connected was David had applied to Slack and he didn't get through but then he referred me to other people he talked to who were in Techria so at, by the end of it I had talked to like four different people who worked at Slack and like got all this knowledge and like feel felt really like empowered so that I could make it through my interview and so that's awesome yeah so the moral of the story is network <laughs> trust your communities and one thing I'll say as well is like never be afraid to go to events I met so many people who were like, oh, I don't, I don't want to go. Like, I'm scared. I'm like, go by yourself. I'm like, take a friend, <laughs> you know, owe them a drink after or something. Because the people who you meet at these events are, again, they're so great. Everyone wants to talk to everyone. Like, being able to make that leap, physical product design, to user research, into digital design for, like, the DevOps IT security space, I've only been able to do that, like, through people who I've met at events. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the way I like to phrase it, if someone ever asks like, what piece of advice would you give to like the next generation of Latinas who might want to get into tech? I'm like just find your tribe because that's really going to help you like not feel so isolated if you're the only Latina or the only Latinx person at work, which was really often the case yeah. when I was first getting into it and will just empower you to like feel better about everything. So yeah. <laughs> so Alexis, as a minority woman in tech, what challenges or obstacles have you faced already? Let's unpack this, <laughs> Francis. Oh, uh, so I think, okay, the biggest one for me is really summed up in microaggressions. Like if I had a dollar for every microaggression I received in the workplace, I could afford a dinner at like a three-star Michelin restaurant. Like these things <laughs> totally add up and it's... <laughs> it's crazy like and what is so bad I mean I'll give you some examples so they can be based on my ethnicity uh, I had one job where I was spoken to in broken Spanish as the only Latina in the office and I'm talking like excuse me yes minutes por favor yes minutes oh and I'm God. like I speak English <laughs> you've seen me give technical talks and presentations so oh you know man. it's things like that man I had a VP of product call me Dora the Explorer in a 30-person stand-up no fucking way are you oh. serious oh it messed me up and she even I asked if I had a backpack <laughs> uh, so that was that was so interesting and I was a contractor and that was my first UX job and I no way. Yeah. Holy I, shit. I mean, I've gotten microaggressions based on my gender. Uh, so at the first or at the startup that I worked at, I was the only female and the only designer with 12 front end engineers on average. And, you know, shout out to 
the OG Sysdig front engineering team because they were incredibly sweet, onboarded me super well, learned HTML and CSS. They taught me certain portions so I could speak a language that they all understood. And mm -hmm. then they were very mindful of design I. But you would get some comments of, oh yeah, Tom codes like a girl. And as the only woman in the meeting, you're like, uh okay what does that even fucking mean <laughs> exactly so okay. you know and i have to say i did talk to that engineer after and i was like hey you know when you mentioned coding like a girl you're implying that women are you know inferior to men don't mm -hmm. have enough technical aptitude which is not the case and mm -hmm. he's like oh my god i didn't even think about it it's like okay yeah um, sure did and <laughs> even comes to the idea of like sexual identity mm -hmm. or sexual orientation where people are like, oh my God, that's so gay. Oh my God, gay people are like so much. You all have too much energy. And it's like, Ooh. who are you? You know, and just like all these things add up. Mm -hmm. And someone said, you know, microaggression is like death by a thousand paper cuts. And I think back on all the times in my career mm -hmm. where the worst microaggressions or macroaggressions as I like to call them happened. And they were done by other women of color. And for me, it's not even by a thousand paper cuts at that point. It's by a thousand machete cuts because you look up to these people because they're so few and far between. Mm -hmm. And whenever they're in like a director role or a manager role, you start to idolize them. And then when they project this toxic behavior, one, it's a complete and utter like mind ball because you're like, wait, we're like in the same sinking ship. Why are you relying on these like really toxic survival mechanisms and are trying to put me down i'm like you, you are in a different department and are like 15 years older mm -hmm. than me there's no reason why you should be fighting like this mm -hmm. um and you know it's still something that i'm trying to process mm -hmm. and really thinking of like survival mechanisms and how they've gotten to where they are makes me realize why they're doing that but that doesn't mean that it's okay first mm -hmm. of all and you know thinking about these microaggressions sometimes I don't even realize they're happening so I had a recent situation in a meeting where I was with my team that's about five people and at the end a director who manages another team in area came up to me and said you know you realize this this had white coworker interrupted you like four times during this meeting and I replied no like I didn't realize it at all and it was because I'm so used to being interrupted that I don't realize that it's not okay for people to interrupt me. So, you know, one thing I will say of like, maybe how to overcome that is to have sort of this network mm -hmm. and to have allies within your own workplace and recognizing that allyship is not a noun, it's a verb. Mm -hmm. So people need to earn the title of ally, not necessarily be like, stamp it on their shirt. They're like, I'm an ally. <laughs> uh, doesn't work that way. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot and it's really tiring. Like, I think it's super tiring and that like triggers me too. And it's like, oh, I wouldn't be triggered if I had to think about any of this in the first place. Cause I think about my partner, right? He is a cis white male and I love my partner, but like he does not have to think about like the same things that I do. He has not had to deal with the same things that I do. And it's like, if I were Nolan, I would probably like my head would not be so heavy all the time if mm -hmm. that makes sense like it would be lighter and I see that in him too where he does he like he doesn't really get it and he doesn't have to like really think about it too much and if he does he'll get praised for it you know yeah 
like, and it's like, well, I don't want you to get praised for it. Like, you should already know this stuff. Like, why do I have to teach you this stuff too? So that that's interesting. And then to your earlier point about like women of color specifically, I think I read somewhere that women are, who are at the very top, they get very protective if other women are present. Like that whole queen bee mentality. Mm-hmm. I think I read that somewhere. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but essentially like, it's because there are so few women in, in the top, you feel like uh, threatened almost if there are other women, right, yeah. who, are, who are there. Um, and it's really sad to think about that because, again, like, we talked earlier about being the inspiration that you want to see and something that I'm always cognizant of as I'm becoming, like, a thought leader in my organization or, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about how management and leadership are not uh, exclusive to one another. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about all the times where I could have had role models to look up to and it faltered and I didn't have them. And just to think like, wow, like this is what I remember from my tech career. Mm-hmm. Like these painful, traumatic moments, like it's not that I'm the first in my family to be in tech or I was the first product designer at a startup and I started a user research program and advocated for design system. And I did a really like decent job at it and now I'm working on awesome next gen products Mm -hmm. or you know the fact that I bring like these gender uh, sorry not gender diversity (laughs) equity and inclusion practices to a workplace it's like no I am remembered as like Dora the Explorer or like you can speak broken English to me or you can ask me where to go vacation in Mexico and I'll be like I don't know because like Mazatlan is the direct opposite (laughs) way of where my family's from uh, so it, it's so painful. Yeah. And, you know, we hear a lot of, especially towards women of color in tech, I get advice that I should be my own inspiration mm-hmm. and, you know, I should lift myself up. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. really tiring. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, like your partner doesn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, why should I be on top of, you know, my queer tax and my women tax and my brown tax and all Minority these things tax, yeah. that I am not paid for, by the way. In fact, I am underpaid <laughs> for, statistically speaking. I have to lift up my own bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And I get that like half of your career is luck and half of your career is managed. Fine. But when you say it like that, it feels like 2% of my career is luck and 98% of my career is like me. So and again, like that's not something that everyone experiences. So it's hard to describe when you're talking to someone who is already in the majority and takes their privilege and access for granted. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's such a shame too. I don't know if you saw the Dora movie. Did you see it? No, but I heard it's really good. (laughs) It's really fucking good, actually. I thought I was like, oh, this is going to be like cultural appropriation. They're going to do some stupid shit. But it was well done. It was really positive. And I was really nice because like uh, the main actress is Peruvian and like Peruvian American, I believe, and like being Peruvian American, I was like, I'm not ever gonna see myself like on screen, you know, in a mainstream movie. But then I did, and they even spoke Quechua, which is like a dialect used in Peru, mostly in indigenous communities, but they still like some folks still know it. And so they use that, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. So that's awesome. Yeah, and it was super diverse too. Yay, someone did it right, (laughs) (laughs) or better than usual. (laughs) Um, Okay, brilliant. 
So we talked about like the strategies you use to overcome those obstacles, which again, like essentially point to community. I guess that's also in relation to like my next question. How do you just de-stress from like a hard day at work? Ooh, I have gotten a lot better at this and actually I love it now, but like I intentionally disconnect from everything. Back when I was in college, I didn't understand why it took people like a week to get back to me in an email. Mm -hmm. Like it should take you like five minutes, whatever. And now that I'm older, (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, I'm that person that takes a week to reply. Cause sometimes I'm just so tired. I'm like, no laptop, no phone, lay down on the floor. (laughs) Just like, don't do anything. (laughs) But it feels good to assert those boundaries and just be like, I need time to recharge for me. And Mm -hmm. then kind of leads into my next point where I love dance. I love dance so much. One, I'm not connected to a technological device and it really helps. Like I'm someone who gets in my head really easily. Like I can wake up and just have a thousand thoughts in a minute. Oh yeah. And you know, to dance just helps me get out of my head and into my body. And, you know, I'm really fortunate to be part of a queer trans and ally Latin dance Academy out in Oakland called In La Cache. Oh, nice. And, you know, our whole mission is around not only raising visibility of queer trans and Latinx Afro-American dancers, but also healing through movement. And I think that's such a beautiful part of that. And to be able to just like be in my body and celebrate whether it's I'm dancing on my own, I'm dancing with someone else. Like I see dance as a language in of itself. And when you dance with someone, you're having a conversation without sound. And I just love, like it really helps my body just like be with my mind. So Mm -hmm. that's something that I really like. Um, and then lastly, and I have to admit, I haven't been that good at it recently, <laughs> so I'm going to come back to it, but I really love cooking. Okay. Um, oh, you know, I just look at different recipes. Honestly, like I really got into seasonal food. So mm-hmm. I started going to the farmer's market more, uh, learning about what's in season versus what is not because the food just tastes better when it's in season. I mean, this kind of sounds like a cultural stereotype, but like my mom always cooked food and was like, if you don't eat this food, you don't love me. I'm like, oh my God, I'll eat the food. Oh, yeah, but no. like, my mom would make us all feel guilty. Yeah. So for me to eat, it's like, for me to cook for you is like a symbol of love. And, you know, now that I have been working more with like professional, like mental health folks, um, you know, just like really paying attention to kind of the sounds and the feeling and you know, what does it feel like for the knife to cut through like the fruits and vegetables? What are the smells like? And getting really grounded in it. <laughs> it reminds me of ratatouille. Yeah, it's just like, it's a whole sensory experience that I think sometimes when we go, you know, so fast in like our late stage capitalism and productivity and metrics for success oh, lives, yeah. like we just completely miss. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, like there is such a beautiful smell when like oil hits a hot pan. And you just smell it. Or like when garlic hits the oil and then wow, the onions and then the vegetables. <laughs> yeah. And then like to be able to eat that, like one thing that uh, I learned from a uh, stress and anxiety management course was mindful eating. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what is it like to not only cook your meal, but then eat it without a phone and just feeling really grounded and really tasting everything and enjoying the thoroughness of that meal Versus like, I, I think about like the breakfast I had today. I like went, uh, shout out to St. Germain Crepery on 2nd and Howard. Uh, I grabbed a uh, breakfast champion crepe and like literally like shoved it in my mouth and was like running to work. 
because it was raining this morning and my bus was like an hour late. Uh, Yay. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, and I feel like we do that so much, like so much of our society and our own metrics and like, you're always on, you're always on and you have to be on, you have to be, you know, total sidetrack. Uh, but my dad recently told me something and he's like, you know, I realized from the moment that you were born that I would have to raise you like a man because you're going to have to work twice as hard, twice as much, twice as long and be twice as smart to get half the credit that a man would. And it was like, my dad's not like a very philosophical person, but when he said that, I was like, wow, thank you. So he did raise you as a man then? Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. And it's like wild to think about that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I see that in some of my own tendencies, especially Mm -hmm. in work. Like Mm -hmm. we had a conversation during our break where it's like, oh yeah, like, oh shoot, we interrupt people. And I can see that. I'm like, oh, but I can also, if I'm aware of it, I can instead interrupt to raise up others. Mm -hmm. Or I can say like, hey, you know, you've talked for a while. Like what do people on this side of the table think? Oh, yeah. Um, I've done that too, where it's like, y'all are dominating the conversation. Y'all need to shut up for a little bit. Or even like realizing like, oh, I'm dominating the conversation. I should shut. Does anyone else have anything (laughs) they want to say? Like, please. So yeah, it's, that's fascinating. It's interesting. I feel like I want to ask my dad that now. Like, dad, how did you raise me? (laughs) Because it's so true. And I think that he's aware of that. And I've read somewhere too, that like for women of color in tech specifically, a lot of them reported in this study done through the Kapoor Center that um, a lot of them had actually like supportive father figures. And I was like, what? And it's like, yeah, statistically, a lot of the successful women of color in tech have had supportive father figures. It's like, why is that the case? And it's like, I'm really not sure, but uh, yeah. Like my dad was super supportive of me too. My mom, I feel like even more so. And like you were talking about assimilation and how like your mom you know, try to assimilate, right? My mom was the complete opposite. Like she was so loud and, you know, she was like that mom in in the audience that would like scream if like your name was, if my name was called. (laughs) So it was like that. And then my dad was like, he was the complete opposite. He was the one who I felt like really assimilated and like tried to be American whenever possible, like as American as possible. Um, But then like when it was just me and him, it would be like, oh, okay, I would... You know, like, what do you think of him? And then I would talk to him back and like, say, oh, yeah, he was like, really, he wasn't, he smelled bad or something, you know, like, we would talk between the two of us, um, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I think like, given the amount of time, I feel like we should probably wrap up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So Alexis, how does your intersectional identity affect how you relate to women in tech groups? Ooh, okay. So this is a complex question and I love it, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So when I think of my identity, a few words come up like queer, Latinx, yet biracial, Mm -hmm. cis female, first gen high school and college grad, able-bodied, invisible disability. And in this big ladder of advantages and privilege in the tech world, some of these words place me at the bottom rung or make it hard for me to relate to some women in tech groups. So you know, for instance, I was at a male advocacy panel that was hosted by a woman in tech group. And the last question that was asked in the panel was from me about um, conditional male advocacy. And what I mean by that is some men will say, yes, I will support her 
if she's white. I will support her if she's cisgender. I will support her if she's straight. I will support her if she's not in a wheelchair. And that's not male advocacy. That's just you being racist, sexist, misogynistic, <laughs> like whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. And some people had no idea what I was talking about because I've seen a lot of men be hateful and even women be hateful towards trans women. And that was the example that, you know, I don't expect a solution from my question, but I at least want people to leave thinking about are there times that they have abstracted that. So, you know, it it makes it hard for me to relate when there are women of tech groups that are very focused on like cis women or very focused on able-bodied women. For example, I was at a conference where a female speaker said, hey, stand up if, and I'm like, oh my God, there better not be people with wheelchairs in the front row because you are literally seeing someone and asking them to do something that they can't do. Like, how does that work for diversity and inclusion? Mm-hmm. You know, but I've found that at least in my own like big dividers, it's ethnicity and socioeconomic background. Um, being first gen, we talked about social capita and mm-hmm. like learning all these things. But on the other side, especially being cis female and able-bodied, like I am in that position of privilege. So, you know, after sitting with that acknowledgement and maybe even discomfort, the next step in that is like, how do I lift others who are less privileged in that space Mm -hmm. with my voice? So, you know, I really think about, especially as someone who identifies as queer, but as cisgender, like how do I help out my trans and non-binary like fellow folks in this space? Like how do we amplify their voices? How do we amplify folks with invisible disabilities? How do we amplify folks with, you know, visible disabilities. And it gets me thinking about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in very different ways, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. Yeah. And the reason I asked this question too, is that far too often when we think about women in technology, we're often talking about organizations that are led by cis, white, able-bodied, straight women. And most of the community that they serve also identify that way. And so women of color are often excluded from that conversation entirely. Yeah, which is interesting to me because one challenge that I face currently, I don't want to say challenge, but it's something that we're aware of. Uh, So I'm part of Splunk's Latinx ERG, and I'm also part of our Pride ERG. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this like Silicon Valley myth that you have to choose one of your intersectional (laughs) identity and like roll with it. I'm like, no, like I can be in Somos and I can be in Pride at the same time. Like, why Mm -hmm. not? And you know, there is this call for intersectionality because if we are so siloed, A, we're not going to be able to learn from each other Mm -hmm. and B, we're not going to be able to be inclusive because we're designing for like this one narrow sliver Mm -hmm. when there's, you know, especially in this question of like women of all, you know, gender identities and races and ethnicities and backgrounds and, you know, expertise. And it's Mm -hmm. like, we should celebrate all of that. And that's the thing too, though, like, do you ever feel like you lean into one identity more than another one? Because like for me, I was given the choice like, hey, do you want to do this leadership cohort with other people of color or do you want to do this leadership cohort with other women? And I was like, I identify first and foremost actually more as a person of color than like a woman. And like when I realized that, I was like, Oh, fascinating. And it's because people of color often understand what I've faced more so than just women in general, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, 
interesting that you say that because that's almost a form of code switching when you think about it. Mm -hmm. In what environments do you lean into one identity of your intersectionality more than others? Mm -hmm. And that can be really taxing. Like I talked about this, but I think of um, our, a human being is like a, this beautiful flower and every petal is a different part of your identity and that's your intersectionality and it should be celebrated. And you can't bring your full self or you only can bring certain parts of your intersectionality. It's like those petals are getting plucked and I'm presenting you with like a half picked flower and you're like, mm -hmm. uh, like no thanks. Mm -hmm. And you know, I am hopeful that in time we're going to have more inclusive spaces. But you know, I think I would, if I were in your shoes, I would have mm -hmm. done the same thing. Cause I think about when I'm in situations with other folks of color versus other women, and I feel more comfortable in these Latinx spaces because at least I'm like, okay, I might have to deal with some like machismo stuff, but like, <laughs> all right, we're like, we can do this. I don't have to, right. that is you true. know, it, explain why speaking Spanglish to me is mm -hmm. kind of rude mm -hmm. or, you know, someone will be like, oh, like, what do you like doing for Cinco de Mayo? And I'm like, I don't like doing anything because <laughs> it's not really a holiday, you know? So it's, it's interesting, but sometimes in order to get ahead or to get these opportunities, you have to play up certain sides of you. So it's like, oh, are you gonna play up like your woman's side today? Or are you gonna play up the queer side today? Or are you gonna play up the Latinx side today? Or are you gonna play up the first gen side? Mm. And it almost feels like college applications all <laughs> over again. I never thought I would say that, but you know, it's to have, I think like that an end goal that everyone should work towards is having at least one community where you can be your genuine authentic self because it's such a liberating feeling. And, you know, one day maybe we'll have like an ERG that does that. But, you know, for <laughs> now I find that outside of work. Gotcha. Same, same. Brilliant. And I guess my last question before we wrap up and like get on to the mini takeaways, who's the woman who inspires you and why? And I'm pretty excited about this question because I actually know this person, so go on. <laughs> so I'm gonna give you two. The first one is going to sound super corny and I mean it. And also disclaimer, I'm probably going to start crying. <laughs> uh, but first and foremost is my mother. Um, like mi madre, she's my pride and joy. And she's where I get my resilience from. And the reason why I can call myself a proud Latinx. And it was crazy because in February I visited Via Hidalgo, Mexico, which is where my tia currently lives. My cousin was getting married. Mm -hmm. My mom, for context, is from a town called Acasculco, not Alcapulco, Acasculco, mm -hmm. which is like, if you take the vertical and horizontal uh, medians of Mexico and stick a point, it's right there. Oh, like, okay. dead center. <laughs> Pueblo of like 600 people. And, you know, for all the travel frustrations that I went with her, and like, I don't even know how she like, does this trip on her own because she forgot her bag on the plane and I had to do everything at customs for her and like all this stuff. Like I got to see how far she came by herself to a foreign country with no sense of language, culture, money at 15, like on Independence Day of all days. Mm -hmm. So like she saw fireworks and thought they were bombs because she had never seen a firework in her life. And in the end, like just become this incredible woman and mother and mentor to me is insane. Mm -hmm. Like I, I get chills thinking about that because to have all that courage and determination for a better life and for her future 
to have a daughter who went to Stanford, who works in tech and is often the first and only Latinx on her team, organization, or company is wild. And, you know, she recently told me, like, that at the end of the day, I'm still humble and I'm the daughter that she remembers me to be. It's like, it's really beautiful. And I'm my ancestor's wildest dream and her American dream. And I really owe this all to her. And now if we talk about like people in the tech sector, I really admire Tatiana Mack. Uh, we were introduced through one of my mentors and honestly, like she's my role model for being authentic and to speak one's truth. I just saw her talk at How Privilege Defines Performance at Reich Speak Code. I also saw her talk at Clarity, which is a conference uh, last month in San Francisco. And I've just never seen someone present such a needed and quite honestly uncomfortable topic given the predominantly white audience at a technical conference. But her words need to be resonated throughout the entire tech community because this is how we're going to dismantle and rebuild a more equitable tech scene. Um, so if you don't know her, look her up. She's absolutely phenomenal. All her talks are online. Uh, and, you know, it's again talking about being the inspiration that you want to see like i see tatiana and i'm like yeah like this is someone who i know is a role model to me and i appreciate her work yeah and if you're listening tatiana um i actually met her at jsconf when mm -hmm. i was talking about that that talk like that i spoke about earlier and yeah she was super inspirational and i i just really hope i guess that she like stays in this industry or like she just recognizes at least like the work that she's doing it's really impactful even though it is really hard it's super hard and when i was giving that talk at jsconf i actually started crying because of what you actually just said it was like i have realized how far i've come and like my mom she came from like Buda, which is like this really small city in peru um, she didn't even have electricity until she was like 12 or something. And I'm like, what the fuck? Meanwhile, you're like, I can't survive without a toilet for three days. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. I, it's, it's overwhelming. It's really intense. But that is, you know, that, that I, I guess is the American dream. But I, I mean, I also feel weird saying that because it's like America right now is just kind of weird overall still. But yeah. But I feel like if we can come this far in such a short amount of time, like how much farther can we go, right? How much change can we enact? So that's what I'm hoping for anyway. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's take a moment to chill for a little and like go into these like more low key mini takeaways. Actually, this one's not too low key. <laughs> so the next question is like, what's a term you want listeners to know about? And it's BPOC, right? Oh, yes. So BPOC and decolonialization. Uh, and super big shout out to Juan Carlos Rodriguez Riera, who teaches graphic design at CCA. Uh, I had an amazing coffee chat with him where he explained this to me. And it really made me rethink my day-to-day -day life and the processes I endured. So uh, BIPOC or uh, BPOC stands for Black Indigenous Person of Color. And why they're separated is the relationship between the person's motherland and their current land. So Black people were torn from their motherland to their current land against their will being exploited uh, and leaving them no connection to this new land beyond trauma and grief. Indigenous people loved their motherland, yet it was taken away from them and their past was nearly wiped out by mm -hmm. colonizers. Mm -hmm. 
uh, people of color have various opinions and circumstances of their homelands and exist in their current land. So by looking through this frame, it can help us understand things like generational trauma, privilege, and really inquiring question about how America is built on some really screwed up ideals, speaking of like America in 2019. <laughs> uh, how about America in like 1776 and like 1400s? Right. Um, but this is where decolonialization comes in. So like, how do we as people of color, especially women of color, reclaim our history, traditions, sense of self-love, self-compassion, community care, and authenticity in a world that's not built for us. We just speak out loud, I guess. I mean, it's speaking out loud and again, finding these communities and remembering practices. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and talking about them. Like mm -hmm. I think oftentimes women of color get scared in raising their voice. No, that's so true. And because, you know, it's like, oh, well, you're saying that because, like, you're extroverted or you're, like, an angry Black woman or, oh, you're Latinas, you're going to look all spicy on me. I'm like, you call me yeah. spicy one more time, <laughs> which, you know, falls into that stereotype more. But I think we should never lose sight of our voice because, again, if all of our voices are united, we are much stronger than the sum of our individual parts. That's brilliant. And um, yeah, that's actually what they used at JSConf was like BPOC, uh, IT, or Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and Tech. So that was pretty cool. Woo. Last question. So where do you live online or how can people reach out to you? Um, so Twitter is a good place to find me. I'm at AlexisXLucio. And then any of Slack channels I'm on, I actually really like using Slack for networking and doing coffee chats with folks. Same. So you can find me on Techeria. You can find me on Hexagon UX. Uh, you can find me as well on Latinx Who Designed. What's the second one you mentioned? I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, so Hexagon UX is a channel that's made for women identifying folks in UX. Oh, okay. uh, so there is a San Francisco chapter. I believe there's a few other chapters across the U.S., but it's really good just to find people who work in research or people who are also UX designers. And yeah, it's been, they have also awesome mentorship program, oh, which brilliant. I recommend. I need to check of. that out. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alexis. You have been so brilliant. I really appreciate like the authenticity and like the answers you've provided. And I know it's hard to tell, but we actually got a little emotional there when we were talking about our moms. So moms are great. <laughs> love Latinx moms. It is pretty easy to cry about moms. So tell them you love them. <laughs> no, that's so true. But again, super appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, thanks for your time. I really appreciated it. Mm -hmm.